1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host. And today we have a really interesting extension of the recent discussions that we've had in the area of infectious disease, mostly around viruses. We have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Peter Pallese. He's a professor and chair of microbiology. He's a professor in medicine and infectious diseases at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. So welcome so much to the podcast, Dr. Pallese. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's really great to speak with you. I, I would take about 30 minutes if I went down the list of honors and recognitions you had. Um, it's really, uh, it is such an honor to be able to have you on the on the uh, podcast today. So for the listeners, Dr. Palazzi was really instrumental in, in early discovery of the different viral subtypes and a lot of the molecular biology around early um, discoveries in RNA viruses and really did a lot of the first mapping and a lot of this Uh, structure and function tests, so how different sequences in the virus uh, related to pathogenicity. We really want to talk about the quest for a a universal influenza vaccine, but let's start out with your career going way back. Um, When did you take an interest in, in viruses, and what was your first laboratory experience in the field? I came to the United States uh in the last
2: century, <laughs> some time ago, <laughs> and was a postdoctoral fellow with Hoffman La Roche. And at the time this was really a very exciting uh development because uh, molecular biology really found its way uh into different uh fields and virology was one where a major uh discoveries were made. This was a time very Uh, heady subjects like reverse transcriptase. David Baltimore found this enzyme, which really was or is responsible for uh, a a big uh, part of biotechnology as we know it now. And so I felt that uh, virology was a really interesting area, and uh, that's how I got uh, interested, and I'm still stuck with it.
1: <laughs> well we, we, of course you know and you work with RNA viruses so really uh, reverse transcriptase this is an enzyme for the listener that is is, in, is essential for being able to have viral replication and uh, and, and uh, inside well inside viruses. Um, what were some of your um real key seminal discoveries back in the night well back back in the 1970s I guess what were some of the big milestones you remember? Yes, I think the most
2: important Uh, discovery at the time was uh, that we found that neuraminidase as part of the influenza virus uh, is really important and viruses which have uh, the enzyme neuraminidase, which is important for the release of the virus from infected cells, if that enzyme is inhibited, uh, we can actually reduce the replication of the virus. And that was uh, something very important that we found the mechanism of this enzyme associated with the virus and uh, uh, antivirals, inhibitors of this new are now FDA-approved drugs, and Tamiflu is uh, one which is very well known, and these are very, very effective drugs against influenza.
1: Oh, very good. So, but tell me a little bit more about the genetics or the genomics, maybe, I guess you would say, of the influenza virus. Yeah. How many genes are actually there? And uh, and what are these A and B types? So
2: influenza viruses are, as you said, RNA viruses. Their genetic information is RNA as compared to DNA viruses. We have, we have DNA and we think, for example, herpes viruses is a famous DNA virus. But influenza virus is an RNA-containing virus, which has eight different RNA segments. And we recognize actually three different types of influenza viruses, A, B, and C. And they all uh, derive from one common ancestor. So some of us actually believe in evolution. Uh, That means that uh, there was one uh, influenza virus uh, sometime back and we don't know how long. And from that, uh, by evolution, we got the type A and the type B and the type C viruses. For for humans, we are only really concerned about influenza A and influenza B viruses because they can cause disease in uh, humans and uh, uh, influenza A viruses also in animals. So influenza C viruses, on the other hand, are not very... Uh, they We all have been infected by them, but they are not very... Uh, virulent or pathogenic viruses for humans and most animals.
1: Okay. And lately, the big buzz has been about coronaviruses and the novel coronavirus 2019. And, you know, it's elicited a certain level of worldwide attention and panic. But really, influenza is a much more present and problematic issue and much bigger risk. And so how big are the problems with influenza today?
2: yeah i mean clearly we all are watching uh, with uh, some trepidation uh, what this new coronavirus is doing and uh, the latest numbers are that uh, over 70000 uh, cases have been identified worldwide and uh, we have actually uh, more than 1700 uh, deaths already counting accounted uh, in Uh, this latest uh, coronavirus outbreak. Now uh, this sounds like a lot and it is a lot, however we have only 29 cases in the U.S. so far. So 29 cases of the uh, coronavirus in the U.S. Worldwide uh, over 70,000 and almost 2,000 deaths. However, and that's your question, how does this compare to influenza viruses? And here we have The numbers in terms of uh, US cases, we have already uh, this season, meaning it started in December, influenza virus, we have already 14,000 deaths and millions of infections. So, really, uh, this I'm not uh, belittling uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, problem, and it is a real problem. But if we think about uh, health, affects how uh, we are dealing with influenza. We are really having a disease here, a virus here, which causes a lot of disease, a lot of morbidity and a lot of mortality as well. As I said, 14,000 deaths in this season alone is quite a lot. And uh, if we talk about influenza worldwide, then we also have a very much bigger problem in terms of number than what we have experienced or what we are experiencing at the present time in terms
1: of the uh, novel coronavirus 2019. Ah, well, thank you. It gives us a lot of perspective. But when we compare that against the 1918 influenza outbreak, how bad was that? And, and was the particular strain just much more deadly, or was it other factors in health services? Or what made that such an event?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. Let me first give you some numbers. We had in the U.S. about hundred million people, and close to a million people died. So this was about a one percent one to death fatality uh, at that time, which is really uh, quite high. But uh, it is really nothing compared to, for example, Ebola virus. Now. Uh, even though only one percent uh, death uh, fatality death rate we had in 1918, uh, because so many people worldwide uh, got um, infected, uh, we assume that up to uh, maybe even up to 100 million, 50 to 100 million people died of the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic because it was worldwide and. Uh, the question then is, why was this such a bad virus? Could we have something similar, which would be much worse than the coronavirus in terms of numbers? And the answer to that is probably not. Uh, we, had, we, we had no antibiotics at the time. Uh, and the reason we, uh, I mentioned antibiotics is because many, many times when you have influenza virus infections, we have subsequent infections with bacteria and they used to cause quite a lot of havoc in 1918. Uh, about 50% of the deaths, if not more, were actually caused by bacterial superinfections with after an influenza virus infected that patient. And also, uh, we had no antivirals, we had no vaccines available. And uh, I have to also say, uh, I was involved in the reconstruction in the, of the 1918 virus in the laboratory, and we had this, we have this virus under a very uh, strict uh, biosafety conditions, uh, and uh, we studied this virus, the 1918 virus. After we uh, reconstructed it in the laboratory, we know quite a lot about this virus, and it is really quite a virulent virus. However, it is a virus which we have some protection because we still have. These, uh, H1N1 uh, descendants of this H1N1 virus around. And, uh, therefore, by having one antibiotics, two of, uh, uh, very good antivirus, three, uh, we have uh, vaccines available. And, uh, clearly we also have been infected. All of us have been infected by viruses which are similar to this 1918 virus. So that I feel, uh, we have some what we refer to as herd immunity, uh, we have some protection against this virus, and it could not be as bad as 1918.
1: And, and I'm a little bit familiar with the work that your group has done with this virus. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about how you were able to reassemble this? Where did you get the information about what the virus was? And, and here's an interesting aside. is Why did they call it the Spanish flu? Yes. Let me start first. Explaining why it is called the
2: Spanish flu, and it has to do with uh, World War One. Uh, Spain was uh, neutral at the time, and uh, it was the only uh, place in Europe and also in the United States where there was no military censorship. And the military in France and England and Germany they were very uh, opposed to uh, admit that there was an influenza virus out there, and uh, they Uh, sort of uh, prevented the newspapers to uh, report on this. On the other hand, in Spain, there was no, uh, because it was neutral, there was no military censorship. And they were uh, reporting uh, that uh, there was this bad influenza outbreak and that people died. And uh, then it became the Spanish virus. But it has nothing to do with Spain per se, other than that the newspapers were allowed to write about it. Now, this virus uh, uh, was reconstructed in the laboratory because we developed a technology which we call reverse tri- reverse uh, genetics. We are able to, uh, based on the sequence, which was obtained by uh, Jeffrey Taubenberger who worked, who worked at the time with the US Armed uh, Forces of Pathology. He was able to get samples from Soldiers who were uh, who died at the time, and are using very sensitive sequencing techniques, it was possible to actually get the sequence. And we developed a technology referred to as reverse uh, reverse genetics. We were able to, based on that sequence, uh, the virus is dead. The virus is extinct. There's no way we can reconstruct. We can re. Evading this virus, other than by constructing it in the laboratory by making nucleotides and uh, then uh, using technologies which were only uh, available for over the last ten years, really to uh, reconstruct this virus in the laboratory and sto- and and study it. And we have done quite a lot of work on the uh, on, on the understanding of what makes this. Uh, Spanish flu, Spanish influenza virus, so virulent, and it was really a virus which had uh, much more uh, sort of uh, virulent characteristics than most of the other viruses which we, other influenza viruses which we have been studying uh, over the last 10 to 20 years.
1: And can we touch maybe on the human pathology side in this a little bit more? You know, you get a viral infection from influenza, but what is happening at the cellular level or the, uh, you know, the, eventually that takes down human physiology? What, what are the what are the, the basis, uh, the biochemical and molecular basis that leads to the larger physical symptoms? Correct.
2: So we all know uh, what influenza is, it's an infection of the upper respiratory tract and it is basically transmitted by uh, being in contact in the same room uh, with people who have been infected. But what is important is the virus only replicates in the, uh, in the upper respiratory uh, tract and in the lung and it uh, does not replicate uh, systemically all over the, uh, it doesn't replicate in the left leg or the right leg. It is restricted to replication in the upper respiratory tract and the lung. And there, it basically uh, infects cells and kills them. And then uh, we have uh, basically a lot of uh, filling up of the lungs with liquid and uh, it's, a, it's a cell damage And uh, if most of the lung cells are affected, uh, then actually a patient can die because of infections with influenza. So it is a very, it's a lytic virus. It is not a virus which is latent or uh, which uh, infects the immune system or anything. No, it is a lytic virus, meaning that it. Uh, affects the cells in the upper respiratory tract. And if too many of these cells are infected,
1: then we can actually have a pneumonia and die. Wow, this is really great. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Peter Palasek. He's a professor and chair of microbiology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast is in a new growth phase, and that's thanks to you, the loyal listener. We appreciate that loyalty in your role in the word-of-mouth advertising, the graffiti tagging, and other vandalism you do to promote this podcast. The spray-painted Talking Biotech Podcast rules on the 405 in LA gets about 100,000 views a day, so thanks for that. But more importantly, remember that this series is a collection of experts talking about the subjects of their expertise. In the swirling snot cloud of misinformation on the internet, it's a great way to review and reference the nuances of issues like glyphosate and how experts assess health and environmental risk. What's up with new technologies reaching the field or your physician's office? Where did our crops and animal friends come from in time and space? These are just some of the questions we've covered, and the archive is certainly worth a revisit. And thank you for your support on Patreon. That support will directly translate into improving this podcast and expanding the media empire we create. And now, back to the podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Palese of the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. And we're speaking about influenza. What is the molecular basis of the virus and how can we head towards a universal vaccine? So I guess the next big question that comes to mind is that you know we hear all the time about H1N1, H1N5. What is the influenza virus? Uh, nomenclature. What does the HN mean? And is this why we need annual vaccination? Yes. So if we look, for example, at measles virus,
2: which uh, is also a very, very nasty virus. However, we have a very good vaccine. And the vaccine has been developed about 60 years ago, and we still have the same strain uh, from which the, the the vaccine strain is the same which was uh, developed 60 years ago for uh, for a worldwide vaccination. In contrast, okay, what that means is that the virus has not changed. It, the virus has been the same. In contrast, influenza viruses, influenza uh, is known or they are known to constantly change. And uh, this is very unusual and, and has to do with the uh, structure of the virus because the virus is like a, a ball like a soccer ball and uh, it has on the outside uh, spikes little spikes and these spikes are proteins which are referred to as hemagglutinin and neuraminidase we have mentioned neuraminidase already that is actually uh, used for the release of the virus from infected from infected cells and the hemagglutinin on the other hand is are important for the attachment of the virus to cells. So these are the two surface proteins and they constantly undergo change in contrast to what measles virus does. And this change from year to year is the reason that uh, we we have to sort of design uh, new vaccines every year, both for influenza A and influenza B viruses because the hemagglutinins uh, change. And uh, we have small changes, which are referred to as drift, and they occur every one, two, three years. And then we have uh, antigenic shift, which is a major change, particularly with respect to the influenza A viruses. And they occur every 10, 50, 20, 30, 50 years. And uh, this is very unpredictable, but it causes quite uh, a lot of problems if a new antigenic shift virus occurs and emerges, and that is a virus uh, which has different hemagglutinins. Uh, we call them, uh, starting with an H1, and H2, and H3. So we had, over the last hundred years, H1 viruses, H2 viruses, H3 viruses. And uh, in each case, uh, the vaccines were, uh, from the previous year, were not, uh, uh, adequate, and uh, one had uh, therefore uh, quite a lot of uh, of disease caused by influenza, and uh, unfortunately, these antigenic drift variants cause problems because every two years the virus has changed sufficiently so that we can get reinfected, and if there is a new uh, pandemic strain where an H2 or an H3 or possibly an H5 occurs then we would have even more problems and that's something we are always afraid of uh, with influenza because it is a quite unpredictable virus and that is one of the big problems with influenza
1: and and how what is the molecular basis of that shift is it mutations that are happening in say the reverse transcriptase um, you know miss creating the uh, genetic material or is it a uh, something like? A, and is it really happening in animal repositories? No, it's a very
2: good question. How do these drift strains uh, occur or emerge? What is the mechanism and how do these uh, antigenic shift uh, viruses emerge? The drift viruses are actually a result of the mutation or the frequency of changes made by the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase of the virus. And as I said, two years of three years of that drift are sufficient that we can get infected, reinfected uh, with a a new drift variant and can get actually disease. In the case of the antigenic shift variants, uh, that usually happens when an animal strain recombines, changes its genetic information with that human virus and introduces a hemagglutinin from an avian, from a bird virus, for example, or from a pig virus or from another uh, virus which is circulating in the animal population. So we have two different mechanisms. One is the error rate of the polymerase of the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase of the the virus. And the second is that there is genetic exchange between an animal influenza virus and a human one and that leads to completely new viruses against which we have no uh, protection and that was for example in 1918 and completely new virus emerged at the time and people had no antibiotics no antivirus no vaccines and had no protection because of this shift variant in 1918.
1: Wow so these shifts are happening they're evading our immunological uh, detection. And uh, and they can cause problems. But is there any part of a virus that could be conserved that is a potential candidate for viral, uh, for say a, a universal vaccine? Now, how, why hasn't this been possible yet?
2: Yes, that is a very, very good question and uh, really addresses what many laboratories do, not only ours, but this is a uh, right now, a lot of people are following that approach. So we talked about the surface of the hemoglobin. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, about the, we talked about the surface of the virus, which uh, consists of the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. And the hemagglutinin should be thought of as a mushroom or a broccoli where you have a stem and then you have a... A sort of head uh, of the mushroom or of the broccoli and this head is something which is changing constantly and the stalk is much more conserved. So in order to make a vaccine against an influenza virus and specifically against the conserved domains of the virus, uh, we are trying to make, and again many different uh, groups are doing this, we are trying to make Constructs, vaccine constructs, which are actually are showing to our immune system these conserved stalks of the hemagglutinin, and uh, by inducing an immune response specifically against these uh, stalks and not against the heads of the mushroom or the broccoli, uh, one is able to induce a, an immune response which is protective. And the trick is how can one uh, do that? And we are making this by making influenza viruses, which have the head of the mushroom or the head of the broccoli uh, is, is silenced. And we are doing this by uh, using uh, exotic heads, which are from viruses which we have not seen. And our immune system then sort of uh, doesn't recognize this head and doesn't make any antibodies against it, but preferentially makes antibodies against the conserved stalk. And this uh, immune response against the chimeric hemagglutin on the virus, which is particularly against the stalk, is actually resulting in a a protective immune response. And we have uh, made such uh, viruses, such chimeric, uh, Hemagglutinin expressing viruses, and we believe that two doses of such a virus uh, will protect against uh, all of these viruses which have the conserved stalk. So that is the approach which we are taking. Other groups are actually just presenting this conserved stalks. Uh, conserved stalk. Uh, this is usually done by making proteins and then. Uh, give the vaccine as a protein with adjuvant or some other way, and uh, the jury is still out what is the best uh, procedure. Maybe we have to have a combination of the stalk only and our chimeric hemagglutinans, which is a possibility. Alternatively, uh, it might be that uh, the conserved stalk alone is already good enough to make such a protective immune response we are right now in phase one phase two trials which are only uh, basically in essence which are, are done in order to find out that the uh, these viruses are not causing any disease are not uh, causing any uh, enhancement of the of the disease and are not toxic so uh, these are unfortunately long last long uh, <laughs> The immune protection should be long-lasting, but unfortunately, these uh, human trials are also very long, and uh, they are are really two or three years in uh, duration because we are uh, we have to find out what the um, what the immune response is, and also whether these um, whether the uh, immune protection is really are still good after this time and protects against different variants.
1: So what kind of timeline, if everything is very successful, is this something maybe we would see in the next 10 years? I would like to say
2: yesterday, but obviously that's not not possible. Uh, I hate to think that it would be 10 years, but uh, uh, it is always a... uh, We are talking here not about a cancer drug or a drug against, uh, um, let's say, um, um, diabetes. So there are many more hurdles uh, to be um, taken because the uh, FDA really wants to be certain that a vaccine, which is given in essence to everyone, is safe and uh, is also effective. So to predict really how long it will take is something uh, we hate to think about and hate to um, give a precise number of years because it will really depend whether uh, the FDA is satisfied uh, with the present uh, approach.
1: Do you think that such a universal vaccine may find a home in animal protection first? Because maybe the bar is a little different there and that maybe, you know, since we share the uh, ability to have infection from similar viruses or same viruses in some cases, uh, do you think that might be happening first? Okay, you have made a very important
2: point. Namely, we need animal models to uh, check out whether a particular drug or a vaccine really works. And uh, there is no... um, uh, different or, or the approach would be really also uh, can we measure that in uh, in animals? However, uh, animals have particularly, for example, chicken, uh, but also uh, pigs have a very short uh, life right now in the commercial world. Uh, chicken, I think, uh, after eight or ten weeks they are slaughtered, and with pigs they only live like three or four. Uh, month and our approach really uh, requires, as I said before, the vaccination with at least two doses, and these two doses have to be given maybe three, four months apart. So, if you want to uh, uh, protect the chicken, it would not be uh, worthwhile to do that because the chicken would be uh, have a has a longer half life, a shorter life than. Uh, the vaccine uh schedule is so unfortunately uh the we cannot check out really how these uh vac- or we can find out how uh, chicken and uh, mice are behaving but we there's no commercial um, possibility really that we use our approach to make uh, vaccines against uh pigs or uh, or poultry at this particular point. It takes too long to achieve this protection, which we are planning for humans.
1: And you mentioned, you know, the, the vaccines are great, and this was, you know, a great, great concept to pursue the vaccine. But you mentioned the drugs that target neuraminidase, which is one of the coat proteins that's required for the lytic behavior of the viral um, of the virus in the cell. So are there new drugs that are targeting those targets?
2: Yes. So the you could argue, why do we need a vaccine if we have uh, these neuraminidase inhibitors? And there's a new one, Belaxovir, which is also uh, uh, sold right now by, by uh, Roche. And uh, these are drugs which are very, very good. But you have to think we have a season of maybe three months a year where we have uh, where we can encounter influenza viruses and can get sick. We cannot take prophylactically uh, uh, for three months a drug against, neuramin- against the new days of the virus like of a That would not be uh, a good uh, strategy. First, it would be also too expensive and uh, particularly uh, one cannot give for a month uh, these uh, ke- these chemicals so it so one can only really use it in the case where there is a very serious infection, and also um, it is one which uh, is only effective uh, for uh, un- unless it is given in the first uh, twenty four to thirty six hours. It's too late, uh, the virus has already replicated, and uh, that is not uh, helpful, or the antivirals are not helpful. So uh, vaccines are really different from uh, from antivirals. They are much more important in terms of a protection against the entire population. And I would like to suggest that it's important that we understand the present vaccines are, Actually, much better than their reputation. Uh, we have in the U.S. We have a mandate, or we have a uh, we have a recommendation by the CDC and by uh, the uh, FDA to actually use to use these uh, vaccines against uh, the virus. That everyone uses them, and unfortunately, they are underutilized. Not. Uh, all of the people are using them, for whom it would be good. And uh, therefore, uh, we would like to uh, make the point that these vaccines are very good and they are uh, responsible for a, a much more milder disease if we still get the disease. In order to make a better vaccine, which is longer lasting so we don't have to vaccinate every year, it would be good to have a universal influenza vaccine, and hopefully, uh, the efficacy of the vaccine would be better than uh, we have right now. The vaccine efficacy is probably not much better than fifty percent in most instances. We would like to think that a universal influenza vaccine would be long-lasting, meaning it would be. Uh, for 20 years or even a lifetime, one, and two uh, would be also much more effective that it has the efficacy of a measles virus vaccine above 90% of those people who uh, were vaccinated are then protected. So this is sort of the situation. Uh, I think there are two different uh, ways of uh, having a uh um, having drugs and or having medicines against influenza. One is an antiviral, and these are the new aminidase inhibitors and uh, the new polymerase inhibitors like Belaxovir. And uh, on the other hand, we have vaccines. And the vaccines which we have, I think are underutilized, underappreciated. I think they are better than their reputation again. And I think we should uh, be uh, hopeful that our Universal influenza virus vaccine approach will result in a better vaccine and also in long-lasting immunity, long-lasting protection uh, for a, hopefully a whole a whole life.
1: Well, it's uh, it's really uh, hopefully a very optimistic um, statement because I really do hope that we start to trust the science more. We live in this time of. Um, Vaccine hesitancy, <laughs> where people are saying that they're less excited about getting them because of concerns about you know their their effect on public health, but you know what do you as a virologist look at in, in a in an infectious disease specialist when you hear that kind of um, rhetoric and how could you help scientists and the science enthusiasts out there communicate more clearly about the importance of vaccines I
2: think the um The CDC and the NIH have very good uh, uh, websites now dealing with influenza viruses on one hand, but also with the novel coronavirus. So I think these are places where one can start. And I think also in the literature, uh, go into Google and put up influenza. And I think there are a lot of uh, influenza vaccines. And I think there's a lot of uh, information out there right now which explains what these vaccines are doing and where we are heading uh, and hopefully will succeed in a universally influenza virus vaccine in a fairly short period of time.
1: So Dr. Peter Pulese, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was really wonderful to hear from an expert about this extremely important and timely subject. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, Please write a review on iTunes, tell a friend, and try to help us expand this audience. It's really new information that's trending more towards the medical and really helping us to provide better information about really important up-to-date topics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to Fulta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.